0: The Daniel Ruiz Tyson Podcast. Hey, how you doing? This is the Daniel Ruiz Tyson Podcast with me, Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Never going bald. That's uh. I think that's just about the only thing that's not happening to me. Uh, show 36, Thursday 24th of November 2011 coming to you from SW8 Love, Loss and Lattes, lots of lattes. I have actually just come back from the uh, cafe where I was uh, firming up the running order for tonight's uh packed show waiter again trying to get me to uh pay at the table I refuse. You know, I want my moment at the bar with all the men, you know, all the guys there with their bluetooth headsets uh You know, eating peanuts and olives, talking about women carrying wads of uh, notes in their pockets. I wanted that moment. I wanted to be up there with them. Uh, Plus, uh, um, I think the absence of a tip is more uh, more noticeable at the table. You know, you're at the bar, it's a bit more packed, lots of noise. Waiters are easily distracted. At the table, everyone's going to see what's going on. Everyone's going to see you haven't tipped. New duvet this week. I think it was last Thursday night, actually, after I recorded last week's uh, show. It was a, it was a cold night, very cold night, and uh, I just thought, I'm not having that. Uh, I'd grown uneasy over the last few weeks as I realised I was one duvet down on what I had when I was at my last flat. And uh, I started off the year in Morden uh, with three duvets. Uh, I do feel the cold. Uh, I, I don't like the cold. The thing is, I probably endured worse when I was uh, growing up, and I think that that has made me paranoid. I just don't want to go through that again. So I went off to uh, uh, Argos that afternoon, Friday afternoon. Got another thirteen point five tog duvet, the second mature purchase of the last couple of uh, months, following the ill-fated bathroom caddy uh, back in September. I'm worried though that I'm I'm kind of peeking too early with uh, all the toggage you know, I've got over 30 togs on there now because uh, I've got a, a bed spread on there as well, I've got this woolly blanket uh, imported from uh, Canada which uh, stayed with me after the uh, uh, after a breakup, a uh, relationship breakup, basically you know I, I've, I don't think with the exception of the duvet that uh, any of the bedding is mine I just don't know where I picked this stuff up I remember where the uh, Canadian blanket came from and uh I had one night under all this bedding, and it, you know, by the weekend, it was like I had the highest bed in London. It was such an effort to get in there. You had to just get on the weights just to have the strength to lift all the bedding up so you could get into bed. And I, I realized on Sunday, you know what, this is too much. What about when it gets to January and February and it's really cold? I'm not going to feel the benefits of that. So... What I'm doing every night, I get in the uh, the new 13.5 talk duvet. I just throw it uh, over the side and uh, try and get through the night as best I can. I did have an email on this subject after tweet and had an email... Uh, sorry, a tweet from... Uh, no, it was actually an email from uh, Peter Domican uh, on subject of bedding. I have one duvet and a hot water bottle. Two duvets might be better than one, but I fear suffocation or a collapsed lung caused by the excessive weight. I've got a hot water bottle too. I tried filling up this hot water bottle the other night in the dark and uh, poured water, hot water, all over my thumb. Uh, Hot water bottle—it's not very masculine. I I recognise that. It has been suggested to me by a number of friends that I get myself an electric blanket. I don't know. I grew up with so many scare stories about electric blankets—you know, uh, people dying under electric blankets, you know, fires—and that I'm told they're uh, they're a lot more safe these days. I might be tempted. Uh, to go for one uh, might be a bit more masculine marginally more masculine than a hot water bottle moment uh before we go on with the show uh just want to give uh, an early plug for uh, the keep your head appeal uh regular listeners you're going to you know you will know by now what's happened to me or rather what happened to me last year. If you're a new listener, show 31's a good place to uh, start. You'll find uh, much of the info on that show or on the fundraising page, uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Uh, thank you for all your donations uh, so far. There's, uh, I think, between three £400, pounds, perhaps over £400 pounds on there right now. All the money's going to the Adult Psychotherapy Fund at St. Thomas's. So I took the weekend off usually uh, as a rule i try not to work on sundays i'm trying to extend that just uh, to the weekends now so i can try and switch off i can try and relax and uh, i have to say i felt much better for for down in tools over the weekend monday and tuesday uh, kind of got back on track with the book i had a good think about it uh, on the, on the monday uh, you know not quite there not where i was a few weeks ago but an improvement on the last couple of weeks and i think Uh, i certainly put that down to feeling fresher but by wednesday i was knackered again i think it's simply a case of how i cope day to day and you know people think because i'm not in nine to five that i'm always about i'll get calls about going out or them coming over i'll get people turning up or ringing me in the morning saying they're on their way it's kind of just one of those things it's like with the writing you know years ago but people didn't take me seriously um and then when I started to sell work, they wondered how I was selling work. Well, I was selling work because the time that you thought I wasn't doing anything, I was actually writing. I was actually learning my craft. I was uh, getting better. And it was inevitable, I think, with the amount of time that I was putting in that I was going to sell my work. I always believed I would be successful. But people don't take you seriously unless you know, unless you, they see you going to work. The thing is, day-to-day, right now in my life, I work harder than I will in my next role. There's no way I'm going to work this hard in a 9-to-5 role. I know that I won't do it. I'm knackered. I'm putting in some uh, some long days. I uh, had all this drilling this week as well, uh, and last week, actually. Building work going on upstairs, and uh, I- ideally I'd like to have recorded this show earlier today. It's gone 7 in the evening now, so I could get it out early and I could relax... Not able to really, just too noisy, too much noise going on. Yeah, you know, by the, by the Wednesday, I was stressed out again. Right now, I'm working out every day to try and get back to how I was mentally in the summer, more mentally rather than uh, you know my, my my need to work out. I think the benefit I feel is as much mental, if not more mental, than physical. It does make me feel better. I'm trying the meditating. I'm still still guilty of crowbarring that into my day. And today, you know, I had the headphones on on YouTube uh, trying to do some meditating and I could just hear all the banging coming through the headphones. I'm also <clears throat> very keen to avoid a return to public sector work. I spent half of the last 15 years in the public sector. Uh, I never liked it. The work was okay. I certainly felt more of a benefit uh, in local government where you know the, the work that you did, the benefits of that to, to the community were more immediate. But uh, the environment, the library-like heads-down feel, I struggled with that. The type of colleagues I encountered, I struggled with that for a long time. I didn't really understand why there was a stereotype civil servant. I I really did struggle to 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 get on with those kind of personalities. And uh, I've done a lot of private sector work, and uh, many of those people that I worked with, a lot of them wouldn't get you know get by. They wouldn't survive in the private sector. The cutthroat nature of the private sector, especially the corporate end, I mean, that always jarred with me. And I think probably my bigger problems, discipline-wise, maybe happened in the private sector. But, you know, I've always been an honest guy in that I could always hold my hand up and say, yeah, I deserve to be sacked from that job, I deserve to be kicked out. Or there were times when I knew that I was going to get myself into, into trouble where I would actually resign because I could see the way things were going and the one thing I didn't like about myself in any area of my life is when you you know, when I'm unprofessional. And I have been guilty of being unprofessional many, many times. But I've always known it and I've always known when to put a stop to it or when to just admit defeat and and, and walk. I've got no problem with, uh, you know, the sackings. Uh, I think you should be sacked if you're not doing your job properly. There were two or three times where I was uh, stitched up, and I think the last time I was stitched up in a job, that precipitated my fall. That affected me on a monumental scale because it was an evening job, and uh, suddenly I was at home in the evenings in a situation that I wasn't happy with. Um... And a lot of colleagues from that time as well, they all said the same. I'm still in touch with a few of them that when, you know, they either took redundancy or when they left the job, they did struggle to get, to you know, readjusted to to to, to their home lives. I encountered so many frustrating colleagues in the public sector who really did deserve to be sacked. And yet so many of them I know for a fact are still in their jobs. You know, I'm talking about the life of... I was at one place, uh, a correspondence unit, you know, guy next to me licking yogurt lids and making noises. Very intelligent guy, but almost autistic. And they think that's acceptable, that it's acceptable to behave in in that kind of way. And colleagues, their other colleagues, just get used to them. And this this particular guy was a very, very difficult guy uh, to work with. Very intelligent, very funny, but very, very difficult. A friend of mine once said, actually, to him... And he'd worked in the public sector as well. The public sector was full of people you never meet in real life. It was as if the government was conducting the mass experiments within the walls of these departments. And I came across so many curious personalities in these jobs, the likes of which you just don't encounter in any other walk of life. I, I, I really believe that. I don't know anybody like the people I've worked with in public sector. Not, not, uh, I don't have any friends like that. They're very formal people as well. I, I don't know if it's something about the nature of the job makes them very serious, but I also struggled with that. And I did ask someone as well, um, who's actually an SEO who's still in the in, in, in the civil service, came from the uh, private sector but has now been in the civil service for ten years. A good friend, and uh, <clears throat> she felt that. Uh, well, I asked why was there such a difference between. Public, the character of a public sector worker and a private sector worker, and she argued that often the roles certainly back in the day, you know, uh, not really talking about fast streamers, uh, but the sort of people who would now be in their forties and fifties, that back in the day the roles often attracted young, you know, school leavers who were already perhaps not quite the full ticket, and the nature of the job, the environment, seemed to over the years accentuate the weirdness, and they've got these ridiculous amounts of holiday. That you don't seem to get in the private sector. I I just don't want to go back into that environment. I worked in loads of different departments. I worked in loads of different buildings. I mean, that was the good thing about contract work that you would often get to work in uh, some amazing buildings with, with 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 amazing histories. But the job, the jobs themselves, the environment, I just I struggled with. Um, I was always a contractor in the public sector, so. I always got turfed out without the union coming to my rescue. I knew they weren't going to do anything to help me. I was very much on my own there. But I saw the union pull some seriously misbehaving colleagues out of the fire who behaved far worse than I did in any of my jobs and who in the private sector would have rightly been crushed. You know, I saw managers intimidated and I saw far worse things than that that I can't mention. And people still didn't lose their jobs. One particular place, very high profile department, um, was so bad that I actually, you know, the stuff that was going on in there was so bad that I actually butted heads with the union. I was working in a place for for 18 months. I only had a manager for three of those months. Everyone that was away was on uh, full pay, you know. They'd still be updating their Facebook and at the time MySpace pages. No one could call them to account. No one was strong enough and uh we were just left to get on with the job without a manager and i went i went into the union one day i went into their offices because there was one particular guy who was always giving some of my colleagues grief for for not signing up to to the union you know i i think unions can do a good you know can be a very good thing can be an empowering thing some employers really uh, they need to be challenged but i also believe in choice if if you don't want to join the union that's fine um these guys i went to them and i said i asked them how they could defend a number of my colleagues given their behavior which meant that you know by the end of that meeting not only did the job want me out but so did the union and as i said i eventually got my act together over the last four or five years in 9 to 5 and i i started uh, I found it easier to attain the professional level I had in my writing. I I just applied myself in the same way in 9 to 5. And I struggled. I started started to struggle even more when I was working alongside these kind of colleagues. And I always found that the civil service was powerless to push them out. Uh, Last year, I was working in a very high-profile department. Possibly, I mean, it was never out of the news. uh, Never out of the news. Very... Intense environment, under pressure, under a lot of public scrutiny. There were a number of colleagues who it it was a uh, startup business, effectively, and there were a number of uh, colleagues being transferred from another public sector department to ourselves three, four months after our department had been set up. And a number of them came, and they were very unhappy. They'd become, you know, they they they'd worked for over 20 years in their old jobs. They'd become institutionalized. They were coming from an, a massive, massive place, which was effectively a village. you know They had everything in this place. They down tools pretty quickly when they came to us. Uh, four or five colleagues who transferred in to my team stopped coming in basically. I was losing my job. I was losing my life. There were people in the country you know, losing their jobs every day. I was soon to be one of them. These people were on full, play, uh, full pay. They were playing the system. And just for me, there's a level of dishonesty among uh, a minority, and I stress that, a minority of public sector workers. But that crippled my old department last year. I saw managers, young managers, fast streamers, who had never encountered this before. They did not know how to deal with a bunch of people. Uh, It wasn't just one or two, it was four or five, uh, playing the system for all that it was worth. There was no money to replace them. They couldn't get rid of them. They had to go through the proper uh, procedures, otherwise they were obviously risking uh, you know getting sued. I ended up working fifty hours a week all the while knowing that I was gonna lose my job at some point and I did by the end of October and you know one of these people actually uh, follows the show I think and keeps trying to add me um, on Facebook or request it uh, you know keeps requesting to join the uh, podcast uh, page on Facebook. It's not going to happen. I've got no respect for these people. My life and that of others in this particular department last year was changing. Those people had jobs, but they weren't turning up for those jobs. For part of the year, these people actually were also getting two salaries because of a bizarre agreement between the two departments. And yet that's how they behaved. I don't want to return to that type of environment again. I don't want to work alongside that group of people again. Given what's been happening this week uh, on the 9 to 5 front, I suspect that's where I'm headed. I've got to be realistic. Um, you know, my, my CV is public sector heavy, unfortunately. Hopefully, though, I don't think that's going to happen till after Christmas. I think going back into an office now would be awkward. Christmas party season, you won't know anyone, you've got the whole Christmas uh, card thing going on. It's just, it'd be horrible. I think. Christmas is a tricky season. Um, I, I, I blogged about this earlier this week. Uh, on the the dating front being another example, you start dating someone in the run up to Christmas. Do you buy them a present? It's awkward if you do, but they don't get you one. You're going to feel insecure. Why didn't she get you a present? You know, th- does she not feel there's any, you know, longevity in your relationship? I think Christmas is a standalone season. You best not starting anything new, job, relationship, whatever, until Christmas has been and gone. You know, start a new job in January. Go there, listen to the Muppets going on about how great their Christmas do was and who got off with who, and just be relieved that you weren't there. Daniel Ruiz Tyson. He doesn't do smileys. Does this sound like the voice of somebody who does smileys? No. So don't send him smileys. You're listening to the Daniel Ruiz Tyson podcast. Love, loss and lattes coming to you from SW8. Follow the show Twitter at 1607 West Egg. Email me drt at dot 1607couk You can also uh, uh, join the uh, Facebook uh, group, the Daniel Ruiz of podcast. Just uh, request to join and I'll add you in when I'm next on there. Special song overkill this week, a historical song overkill, the song that you keep coming back to. Not necessarily your favourite song, but the song that you've kept playing for many years on a regular basis. I'm going to go with. Uh, Woman in Chains uh, from the Caesar Love album. I'm sure many of you are tired about hearing uh, the whole tears, for fears thing, but uh, you know this is about being honest. Uh, Caesar Love album, big album in my life. Reflected what was going on with uh, you know uh, in my own life with uh, with a close friend. You know the whole backdrop. Uh, you know I'm not a Beatles fan. Okay, I've, I've I've said that plenty of times, but I'm fascinated by the history of their final years. More more so than their music. I acknowledge they were making great music. I like the fact... I like any band that has a very different sound at the end of their time together. And uh, Tears for Fears were one such band. I thought the songs from The Big Chair was a very commercial album. Um, obviously, I didn't think that when I was about... I was 13 when it came out. And uh, there were big anthems on there that I loved at the time. But there's songs now that I don't really like. Caesar Love, very uncommercial album. Very expensive album. There's a great interview with Mariella Frostrup on Antias of Fears in 89 that I dug up on YouTube in which she interviews uh, Roland Orsable and Kurt Smith separately. And uh, Kurt Smith, and I'd seen him before as well in another interview from the time, uh, ties himself up in knots and it's obvious that something is very wrong between the two of them. And basically what was going on during... Uh, in the background to this album was Kurt Smith had decided that his role within the band was more the, the, the face and voice except he was no longer the voice of Tears for Fears Audible had grown in confidence he, he, he knew now that he could sing and he ended up singing seven of the eight songs uh, Smith would go around the world uh, promoting Tears for Fears, Audible was stuck in the studio uh, the uh, Nelson Mandela concert at Wembley in the summer of 88 Kurt Smith played at that, Audible was stuck in the studio there was you know tension between the two as to the manner of how they were recording the album uh, they, i think they 'd sacked or got, got rid of you know, got rid of or whatever a couple of producers before deciding to produce the album themselves. They scrapped the album after uh, discovering uh, Alita Adams in a in a uh, bar in Kansas City, contacted her, brought her over uh, Pino Paladino took over most of the uh, bass playing duties from Kurt Smith. It was a very interesting album. The Phil Collins story. I mean, the drums on *Warming Chains* are, are, are absolutely brilliant, and uh, the story goes: Kurt Smith had uh, spoken to Phil Collins about doing the drums and had said, "Look, we'll book you in for a couple of weeks uh, in a hotel, and uh, you know, hopefully, nail this down within a couple of weeks." That's how slowly Tears for Fears were working. They were perfectionist and Phil Collins uh, said to them, "Why a couple of weeks? I'll do it in an afternoon." And so he did. He did the drums in an afternoon, and. Uh, I think the song is about Orzabal's mother, uh, mother, who was uh, a dancer, if I'm, if I'm creating things obviously uh, weren't great at home. Not that easy to interpret, though, uh, from the lyrics, but I just think it's a, it's a great song. It's a song that didn't really help their career. It's a song that didn't help their career, uh, but I love the video, um, I love the song, and also the fact, you know, the friendship, breaking up. And uh, I had a friendship around that time as well with a lifelong friend up to that point. Uh, Nellie Jenkins, who I've talked about on the show before. Very special friend. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just grow apart. Sometimes one of you doesn't understand why you've grown apart. Uh, one of you is not ready to leave the friendship. But it happens. And it, you have to deal with it. You have to move on. It can take you a long time to understand. Uh, you know, obviously, Tears for Fears had their reunion. Uh... 13 14 years later, everyone loves a happy ending. Not the best album. Bizarrely, now they're, they're playing Woman in Chains, and there's a male vocalist taking on Alita Adams' uh, vocal duties on the song. And It's very, very strange, very unsettling. And he's trying to sing like a woman as well. Um, it's like watching a drag queen sing. I'm just, uh, you know, I think it should always be a female uh, singing uh, those vocals. But that's my, that's my historical song, Overkill. Brilliant song, brilliant song. The YouTube interview, I'll see if I can dig it up, because uh, Frostrup famously says to uh, Orsboe, I think she's hinting that the album is heavily produced, and uh, he he could be quite defensive at times. Uh, I, I've seen him in concert a number of times. He is a very, very funny guy, and uh, like me, not, not prone to uh, easily smiling, and uh, he, he simply responds by saying, well, it is very produced. Um, that's worth digging out on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, Silly Casper. Silly Casper's historical song, Overkill. I think this is a relatively new song. Because, uh, Silly Casper, I think, gave, uh, gave a song to me a couple of years ago. Midlakes Roscoe, uh, he writes, is a song that might only be five years old, but it's already a firm favourite. There's something utterly classic about this from the opening chords. It feels rooted in a time and place far from here. It does mention the year 1891, and the lyrics evokes thoughts of something rustic and pre-industrial. Despite its fairly galloping pace, it has always struck me as sad and slightly mournful. If there's a sense of loss, it's probably the reason why it will always have a hold on me. By 2006, my hi-fi had long gone. Does anyone have one of those these days, he asks. And I had this song along with many others on my Xbox at my old flat. One night in August, my mum died after a long illness. We returned home and the silence seemed overwhelming. Uh, That can only explain why I turned on the console and started playing Roscoe. I don't really like to commit to gestures or ceremony, but something about this seemed right, even if the whole process was far less elegant than strolling over to place a needle on some vinyl. Of course, I hadn't had one of those for many years. There were three of us in my front room, and we just watched and listened to the TV. I won't say I'll ever feel anything life-affirming or joyous about Roscoe, but it marked a sense of loss in a way that words fail to do. It is a song that has power and urgency, and while I won't play it every day, I'll always be returning to it. I feel the lament in Roscoe is about the kind of lives we lead and where we might be going and that we want a connection with something more meaningful and truthful to ourselves. Well, I certainly never knew that's what the song meant to uh, Silly Casper. Uh, I knew his mum, great lady. I don't think that generation of woman is around anymore, and I would include my mum and and, and the mother of other friends who've who've gone on to pass away in that. Um, Very uh, special lady, always very good to me. Uh, Didn't know that about, uh, about Roscoe. Didn't know uh, he'd had it as well for five or six years. I swear he only gave me that song a couple of years ago. He, he, he must have been uh, holding on to it. I do like the song. It's uh, it's worth checking out. Uh, Peter Domican. Uh, hi, Daniel. Uh, when you've got an iPod with 105 gigabytes of music on it, one tune's a bit of a leap. I cannot inflict my love of early Genesis upon you and your listeners. True, it's an infinite improvement on Donnie V. But the youngsters like ev he won't be able to cope with the return of the giant hogweed. New Order would be a more obvious choice, say Subculture or Blue Monday. See, I never liked Blue Monday. Uh, I could see why it was such a big track, but it's the one New Order song I genuinely don't like. Uh, Peter goes on to say, but like many bands, they take me back to a very specific time of my life. So it's Peter Gabriel uh, in brackets solo, Springsteen or Chrissy Hind. Uh, all songwriters who stay with you in a different phase of your life and as you go through triumph, disasters and regret another layer is added to the song taking them from just a good song when you're a kid to a biography of your life. Let's go with Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill simple song and a lyric about what home means. When I was a kid it was a simple happy song but now I wonder where and what home is every time I play it. That's this week's uh, song Overkill. Get your song Overkills in for next week. Normal service resumes just any song next week that you're playing at that particular week. Things I saw this week. Today, today I saw a cyclist in normal clothes. Can you believe that? None of this professional cyclist look, uh, look at the outline of my balls through my lycra nonsense uh uh, you know bicycle clips he was wearing bicycle clips Uh, he wasn't wearing a helmet very naughty should have been wearing a helmet but it was just good to see someone cycling that reminded you of people's dad's cycling 20 25 years ago i don't get the whole lycra look i also saw a man with uh, a trolley shopping trolley uh, at the bus stop it's a very uh, eccentric and effeminate look for a man. I've always thought that. I will never ever push a shopping trolley. I think it's okay when you're a, you know, you're a teenage boy and uh, you're you're being made to be a bit more responsible and help your mum at the shops and that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's a that's a good look. That's a nice thing to do. But uh, when you become an adult male, that just does not look right. Mind you, I've seen this guy uh, around here before. He's he he is a nutter. Uh, often see him in the mornings reading his book aloud in public and uh, laughing tracksuit bottoms pulled right up to his tits. And I do mean tits. So uh, I see him at the bus stop with his trolley. He's talking to himself. Uh, bus arrives, gets on with the trolley ahead of all the women. And I'm thinking he is a man with absolutely zero interest in ever getting women interested in him. How do you arrive at such a point? Or men for that matter. He, he just does not seem interested in anything. Uh, I saw uh, an eight-year-old boy take a call on his mobile and uh, I thought, man, at his age, I was still seven years away from sharing the marital bed with my dad for a couple of years. And I also saw, and this took me back, I saw this Asian woman, mid-40s. She was never the full ticket either. Um, hadn't seen her in over 20 years. I used to see her every morning on my way to college. I could gauge how late I was running despite only living 15 minutes away from uh, my college. <clears throat> uh by at what point in my journey to college I saw her walking towards me, I'd be going in one direction, she'd be going in the other, if she was near the top of Union Road um, the Clapham Road End, I knew I had to pick up the pace, she was always talking to, uh, you know, talking to herself She, I have to say, she didn't look too different, she'd aged very well uh, but she was still talking to herself I remember a lot about those walks uh, that first year at college 89, I'd often check my hair in the reflections of car windows, Manchester was coming through, I was growing out a wedge I was going on full-on curtains. I was about to, you know, have bands like the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses become part of my life. I had my Magister hoodie with a floral pattern that everyone was wearing that spring. A lot of guys, I remember, with perms as well cropped up out of nowhere too. You know, sent apart and then permed hair. It, that was an awful hairstyle. Audible, Caesar Love. I think he had uh, he played a part in that. I've said it before, that could and should have been the most exciting year of my life. That should have been the turning point. But I never quite made the most of what was a, a very uh, promising uh, academic year. And I was thinking about all this when I watched this uh, this woman, uh, who I hadn't seen for 20 years, leave the Sainsbury's car park. Um, I tend not to walk too much around that part of Stockwell anymore. I, I go as far south as my aunts and then I walk the other way, Vauxhall bound where i've forged newer memories some admittedly are painful memories but they're new ones then they're, they're, they're newer um it was important for me to to, to create new memories away from uh, from mayflower where i grew up and uh last uh last weekend i was looking at the photo album uh that Mickey was looking at on uh, show 50 of Please Don't Hug Me Um, when we record, he's at the other end of the table so I couldn't actually see the pictures he was looking at though I do know them, there's nothing in there to surprise me and all the pictures in that album are, you know, pictures from me from about a month old to, to, well me and my sister were probably about seven or eight so they're about to the late 70s, uh, 1980 maybe at uh, tops So uh, I had the album out because I'd been looking to return it to my uh, sister. She couldn't take it on the Saturday. And flicking through it on the Sunday, was kind of hard. Not hard on the surface hard, but hard, you know, deep inside your heart. Like, you know it hurts, but you've got it locked so far in you now. It's it's buried so deep, that hurt, it's not going to cause any damage. You can just feel teeny little aftershocks. And they almost come as a relief because you realise that you still have some feeling for that old life, but it's very under control now and in that moment you're looking at these pictures you know and every one of those pictures is showing you what you've lost it's letting you know that you have big balls that you've walked through a lot you're still standing you've got to carry on walking because look at what all these people who are no longer here all these people in these pictures look at what they did for you on the other hand you're thinking hang on a sec pal I've got story and I've got one pair of bootcut jeans left I can barely walk in after my aunt repaired the crutch and a, 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 and a pair of tan shoes you know uh, not sure not sure i got too much um, incidentally actually Billy Two Rivers Nine and I both have the same pair of shoes I know this because the uh, broken genius of the East Midlands posted a, a picture on Twitter earlier today I recognise the shoes they are identical to my tan shoes we've exchanged shoe details uh, they were part of their Next 2005 range. I remember this because they're the last ever thing I bought from Next. I'm not a big fan of Next at all. We've established they're dangerous in the wet. They're, they're, I don't like walking around in these shoes in the wet. Um, I think we've both kept them going in, in you know, very good condition, uh, five six years on now because they've never been our first choice shoes. Although my current state means that they're in, you know, enjoying an unbroken run in the first team um, I think it'd be a good idea actually I'd, I'd like everyone uh, who's interested to post a picture of them if the opportunity ever arises to take a picture of themselves with their shoes on the desk in their job send it to the show drt at westegg 1607.co.uk we'll name it the two rivers nine desk moment in his honor, and I'll stick them on the blog 1607westegg.wordpress.com uh, let's see what people make of the footwear the desk setup. Uh, We already know from uh, Billy Two Rivers Nine's uh, pictures uh, that he drinks Yorkshire tea. I think he's taken a bit of a a ribbon for that. I'm not saying that Daniel gets a bit morose now and again, but his local coffee shop have named the drink after him. It's called the Double Depresso. I put a call out on Twitter uh, last week, or earlier this week. Coming back. uh, You've heard my story over the last year, the fall. Not quite the... uh, renaissance yet um, but i i wanted to know your story bit of a cheesy opening not quite sure how to sell this feature just yet i just want to know how you felt what you did or are doing to come back Uh, unless specified i'm not going to be using your real names for this Uh, so i had a couple of emails on this Uh, mickey boyd that wasn't mickey really actually and let's call this listener mariner i'm going to name people after footballers that resembled uh my dad And uh, there was a a period, I think it was 2003, where for a couple of months all I did was just uh, interview uh, footballers, old footballers, uh, modern footballers who looked like my my dad or had his hairstyle. Uh, Okay, first one, Mariner, Paul Mariner emailed in. Two years ago, I broke up with my girlfriend of four years. We had been together since my very early 20s. She was the first person to show an interest after an exceptionally introverted adolescence. And due to said introversion, she uh, helpfully did most of the work in getting the relationship started. Had we stayed together, that would have been a good story. Instead, it's rather spat me out into my late 20s having never had to do any work in approaching women or flirting or any of that, thus without any clue what I'm doing. After that, I became increasingly frustrated with a 9-to-5 job that now formed the most substantial part of my existence. So I dropped down to part-time to do a writing MA, moved to a new house slightly further out of London to get away from crowded house shares and hoped this would be enough. I'd like that to be the story of how I came back. But, to be honest, as the end of the MA looms, feeling increasingly isolated in Distant Zone 4, with both a desperate need for money to live and a burning dislike for the idea of returning to a regular job, I suspect that won't be it. Especially because, based on both your own and other stories of job hunting woe, I doubt I'm going to find the job of my dreams out there right now. I've barely been clinging on to my part-time hours in the face of cuts, and I've sold a couple of stories, but not really enough to pay the rent. Two things here, I, I know who Mariner is, obviously I'm getting the emails, um, I know he's a writer and I, I know that I'm about a decade older than him, so first thing to know is employers, and it's not to say your situation isn't difficult, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, trying to find the positives in this and I think there are positives, um, employers will view you differently to a, a nearly 40 year old man in a pair of tan shoes, let me tell you that, don't let my experiences certainly discourage you. Uh, My own mistake, and I'm speaking as a writer here to another writer, was that I always built my life around the writing. Because I succeeded at one point, and also because I got published very early on. I was still a teenager when I was first published. I couldn't see that was wrong. It never quite felt right when the success came. Nothing changed. But I never saw that it was wrong until it was too late. You know, I I, I would say don't put the writing first until your life is in order. From what you're saying, you haven't anyway. Um, You need to find a way to support yourself so that you can write without the kind of pressure that will cripple any project you're working on. I always wrote under huge pressure. That pressure's still there, but I right now, knowing that it's not and can't be the most important thing in my life, I learned that very late, though. The world, hopefully, I think, will be a different place in 10 years' time. I'm confident from his work, and I've you know, i, I I've been on his website a number of times, and I, I, I click on his links that he tweets, that Mariner will be a success in his chosen field. Whether I'll be around to witness that, who knows? Um, but, you know, Mariner has plenty of time. I think your 20s is where you struggle and make your mistakes. 30s is where you have your... You know you've got your shit together unfortunately i just repeated the 20s in my 30s that's the kind of guy i am but and uh, you know i think this is critical mariner has sold two short stories selling a piece of work for any writer artist however small the fee may be is a brilliant thing i haven't sold anything this year i haven't sold anything for two years i've only been trying this year but uh, you know i know now as the year closes that the podcast aside i'm no longer writing for free i know that i'm back up to a certain level now I did that to uh, you know I did the free writing to get back on my feet again, gain a foothold in a new area of writing. My next step is get to where Mariner is and to start selling work again. So I don't think Mariner you know, it's not I've only sold two pieces of work. You've sold two pieces of work. You there will be a third piece of work that you sell. Don't play that down. That's a big thing. There is a market for your work. The introverted thing, I can relate to that. I don't know if that's a writer thing. We live in our heads where you know, we are introspective. My first published work at 18 was a long, discontinued comic, uh, a piece that appeared in this comic called Discordia, The Introvert and the Dastardly Garden Mole, inspired by a William Horwood's Dunton Wood trilogies. Uh, I had an introverted lead, obviously based on myself at the, t- um, at the time, hanging out with a talking mole. Puzzled my dad, he never understood it. I, I you know, For my part, I, I explained to him I'd, I'd be happy to explain it uh, once he got dressed. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to be discussing my first piece of published work with a uh, uh, a man who was naked. Uh, so keep on going, Mariner, dig in. Um, you know the future. You, you can make that yours. You you can make that yours. This next coming back email. Uh, very long. Uh, I've I've had to pare it down. Uh, it's still long. Uh, it's a bit harrowing as well. And I kind of first read and I thought, oh, I I I, I suddenly regretted putting this call out on Twitter. But then I reread it, and you know the ending is uplifting. So, you know, stick with it. It's from a female listener. We'll call her Ray Clements. Uh, again, someone my dad resembled. Hello, Daniel. I print off these emails, and I don't know what it is with my paper. It's all curly. So here's my story, which will be way too long to read out, but you seem like a man with plenty of time on his hands, so I thought you might want to read it anyway. See, there you go. People always assume I have time on my hands. eh? Hence the long email. I don't have that much time on my hands, people. You know? I'm going to have to split this one in two. Anyway, um, Clements was born with spina bifida. Uh, says, the nerves in my spine didn't fuse together right. Instead, they came out and were contained in a large fatty lump on my lower back. Um... My father didn't want anyone to know. My mother told him that was ridiculous as clearly they would see. Fast forward a few years and I had major spinal surgery at Great Ormond Street to remove half the lump. It was a success. I remember being pinned down by my grandparents whilst my mum removed the plaster over my stitches that ran right around my middle. Apart from getting called camel at primary school, I had a good childhood. I could walk, skip and run and life was dandy. Then when I was 12, I trod on a stone. This left a gaping hole under my foot that wouldn't heal. I was then, after several months, diagnosed with neuropathic feet. In brackets, no sensation. I'm not sure how I didn't know it before, but I guess if you've never had something, then you don't know what you're missing. A bit like me with money, really. Um, I was then forced to wear a hideous foam boot. This is brilliant. Which my big brother decided to pimp up by drawing a Nike symbol on the side. That's that's great. Uh, uh clement says to get by at school i would impress my fellow students by taking off my shoes and kicking the wall as hard as i could this prevented me from being bullied like they did the girl with no hair or the burns victim boy uh this eventually had its consequences though as i woke up one day to discover my foot had swelled more than john Merrick's. i was rushed to hospital and diagnosed with a broken foot that unfortunately had been broken for so long there was nothing they could do about it so i was left with a massive foot Every cloud, though, she says, has a silver line. I got to wear Adidas gazelles to school as I couldn't fit into normal shoes anymore. Um, Then she goes on to say she got through her school years suffering more ulcerations on her feet. Uh, One such ulceration went bone deep and uh, got infected. Uh, they whipped the bone out Uh, result. She says, I could now wear normal shoes again and I never had to do PE in my entire time at secondary school. Apologies for the way I'm reading this. I'm kind of doing what they do on Match of the Day 2, which probably has to be the worst program on television, considering how great Match of the Day was in its heyday, where they'll... they'll, they'll, uh, Show you the goals from a game, and they'll divide uh, the commentary between the co- the actual commentator who was at the game, and then Colin Murray interrupting and telling you what's going to happen next, and then back to the commentator and so on, like it's going to hold our attention better. I think that's what I'm doing here. Now I, I've lost my place. Uh, okay, I then she goes on to say she had bladder problems, again, owing to nerve damage. Uh, went to the doctors when she was 15, they sent her to an incontinent uh, continent specialist. I was sent to a room with a toilet in it and asked to urinate. This wasn't a toilet cubicle. It was a toilet in the middle of a room. I got stage fright. Actually, I felt sick and humiliated. I couldn't do it. They eventually told me my life would be greatly improved if I used a catheter. My bladder wasn't able to work on its own. Now, these aren't like a catheter bag. It's just a thin tube you insert when you need to go... On a toilet, just like a regular person. Of course, I would need to be shown how to use these. So one day, a nurse came round, asked me if I had a jug, and we went upstairs to my mum's room. She then inserted it for me, whilst I urinated into my mum's measuring jug, whilst laying on my mum's bed. Uh, ur- urinated are not words uh, she's using, by the way. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm softening this email. Uh, probably slightly more humiliating than the toilet-in-a-room incident. Certainly not one of my favourite memories. Um okay coming up to the end of the first part of this uh, coming back email. She then goes on to say that when she was 16 she cut her little toe. Um uh, let me see. Okay, uh, it got gang she got gangrene they chopped it off. She felt utterly deformed but says I phoned my mom and told her very matter-of-factly they've amputated my toe and was repulsed when she burst into tears. 16 nine toes had a few one-night stands, kept my socks on, desperately seek Well, I mean uh, you keep your socks on in a cold flat, too. Um, anyway, desperately seeking the approval that men would still find me attractive. At 17, I met a man, moved to Sheffield. He turned out to be a psycho. I came back home. Another infection, another toe-off. 18, uh, 18 to 20, got my own place. Slept with more men, some boyfriends, some not. Lost a few more toes. Met a man I adored. He had a girlfriend. We started up an, aff- uh, an affair. His unwillingness to dump her heightened my own insecurities. But I, st- but still I believed him when he said he would dump her. Men, eh? Uh, another infection, another toe-off, parents away. He promised to be there when I came round from the anaesthetic. He wasn't. So we'll come back uh, to this uh, shortly. Uh, uh email does have a good ending, I, 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 I can assure you of that. Uh, here's uh, uh, something that happened today. I finally went to get my uh, keys cut, the spare set of keys. I've been here over six months, still haven't got a spare set of keys cut. Thinking, well, you know, for, for, for whatever it's going to cost me, however expensive... It's going to cost me about £100 if I get locked out of here. Finally got my act together. It was just a chub key that uh, was outstanding. Went into the shop in uh, Stockholm. Took advantage of the gangs not hanging outside uh, there today. Filthy shop floor. Uh, tiny shop. Tiny reception area. Carrier bags everywhere. Uncleared autumn leaves in the front. And I'm thinking, how do these people go to the loo here? You know, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. There's nowhere for him to go to the loo. I think he'd have to close up the shop and go somewhere. And it reminded me of this florist in Putney... ...next to uh, Putney BR station. There's no loo in there. They either use the uh, Weatherspoon pubs... uh, ...across the road or the station next door. And if it's the station... ...how did they come to that arrangement? Was it the founder of the florist... who, who, ...who orchestrated that arrangement... ...who put it in place? How quickly would they have befriended... ...the station attendants? How was that arrangement passed down... ...among new staff, among new station staff... ...or new florists? Was there ever a time where the florist and the station staff didn't get on, and that offer was uh, was closed. Anyway, back to the key cutters. Uh, he's cutting the chub key, and he uh, gives me the chub key. I pay for the chub key. Then he asked me if I'm a banker in finance. I said no. But he gets out this sheet of A4 paper, and he begins sketching out some numbers, telling me about some loan deal he took out 10 years ago. And I'm thinking, ask me anything. Football women, US cop shows ask me about the difficulties of maintaining a boner in a flat with an economy seven storage heating setup uh, you know and, and, and you're trying you're trying your best and you know other guys are viewed as kings by their women because they're pleasuring them in flats with oil-fired heaters and lasting five times as long as you ask me anything ask me any of that don't ask me about numbers and money it's not my thing and i was there and uh I was hoping someone would come in. No one came in. He, the man's given me a microscopic breakdown of all the money involved. I could see he was stressed. The figures in question for a small business like that, and I'm assuming this was in relation to his business, those figures were astronomical. And I'm thinking, what? what I, I've got nothing to say to this guy. I can't be of any help. I can't give him any advice. I have no clue what's going on other than he appears to be in trouble. And that was it. I told him about my own loan, how it's nearly done after nine years, how I won't be getting another one. Uh, we had a language barrier, an uh, oriental guy. I wasn't really understanding what he was saying. He wasn't really understanding what I was saying. But it worries me. Uh, it worried me what I saw in there. Um, and I think I'll check on him in a few weeks. I won't get another key card. I'll, I'll, I'll just have a look in there and see if he's, uh, he's still there. It, it reminded me of an old news agent. That we used to have around the corner from Mayflower when I was growing up. He used to run a, a grocer's. I used to go round the back of his shop every week uh, with my ten p.m. phone, uh, phone a friend from there because we never had a landline. And uh, he was good to us. He was good to my mum. He was. Uh, he also doubled up as a um, black cab driver. And I remember being at the doctor's with my mum, which was uh, frequently. Uh, the regular listeners will know that I was there in uh, January '84 to discuss uh, an infertility concern on my part. And this would have been maybe about eighteen months later, around the time of Live Aid. I remember being there with my mum, and I could hear this voice uh, shouting at my doctor. You know, don't tell me not to worry. You know, our oh, oh, doctor—that was always his catchphrase. You know, nothing to worry about. You know, and this guy's shouting, at him, "Don't tell me not to worry. Don't tell me not to worry." And we saw him come out. It was an awkward moment because we all knew each other. And uh, he just said hello to my mum. But he looked, you know, very serious. Never seen him looking as serious as that. This guy was a very, very big guy. Asian guy. Massive. Big Bill. And, uh... A couple of weeks later, maybe less, his uh, cab was found, I remember, at Vauxhall Bridge. And uh, he'd committed suicide. I'm assuming that he'd thrown himself into the Thames. Uh, I never forgot that. So... uh, Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm drawing parallels there. I'm a little worried about this guy. He did seem stressed, and you don't have that kind of conversation with a stranger. I'm not saying he's going to do something stupid. I'm just concerned, and uh, the figures... uh, Yeah, money's not my thing, but uh, they were some big numbers that he was uh, sketching down on this piece of paper. Also, back on the hand gel this week. uh, After... uh, I was actually in the cafe yesterday, and uh, for consecutive guys came out of the loo no one used the new soap dispenser the hand dryer didn't you know come on the, the taps didn't come on and i was watching them they go towards the door and there it is they're all opening the door and i was thinking why have i never seen this before why why have i never realized it you know that's you know that's four know four four appendages right there on that door handle no two ways about it. Back on the hand gel. I've got to find a way of cleaning my hands as soon as I step out of that cafe, rather than handling my phone, holding my bag, doing up the buttons on my coat. Yeah, that's uh, that wasn't that wasn't good. Uh, so yeah, back on the hand gel. You're listening to the Daniel Rudes Tyson podcast, Love, lots and Lattes. Lots of lattes. Uh, show 36 coming to you from SW8. Uh, the final part of the uh, coming back. Email from uh, Ray Clements. Um, so she's had a few toes uh, amputated. Uh, says now she's uh, working at a bar uh, at this time in her life. Uh, she was working as a DJ, barmaid. He was the chef. I found out he was seeing another girl as well as me and his girlfriend. Well, three women. Uh, I got cross, lost my temper, kicked a stainless steel fridge, broke my other foot. They put it in a cast uh but i wanted to go out so me and my friend cut the cast off again the bones fused together funny so my foot uh was a mess i was still getting ulcers not informing the doctors not bothering to dress them i looked in one once and saw something white it was a piece of bone it fell out and i delighted in running over to my friend and showing it to her all right so for the two listeners i have left now let me just continue with this uh says she's now 21 at this point seven toes left two misshapen feet i was also put on a disability allowance due to the frequency of my hospital stays i then got pregnant smooth move on my part his girlfriend found out and they split up i decided to have the baby it didn't matter if he stayed or not i was going to have it all by myself he went awol for a few days then turned up on my doorstep looking like a tramp on crack it hit me hard i could not have a baby with this man so I booked in for an abortion. I had to wait a month before it could happen. And that month he was amazing. He'd never been so kind or loving towards me. As I sat in the waiting room surrounded by pregnant women, I sobbed and he told me a story of a boy and a girl who lived happily ever after. I was given a tablet and sent home to wait and came back the next day. He stayed with me throughout. I was on my own when I went to the toilet and delivered my dead fetus into a hospital standard sick bowl. Though oh, I messed that up. I'm sorry. Uh that that's the bit where i struggle with because uh i i uh, experienced that myself in a previous relationship uh though it happened at home uh that's uh you know and i was ready to take the blame for that as my ocd's kicked in but uh, here i am uh, guilty of turning this into uh, into about me it's not about me it's uh about this girl who sent me this very long email so we're back to her she's in the hospital we walked back from the hospital as he had spent the bus fare i was pale and a bit weak because of the blood loss but we made it back after an hour and watched battle royale he decided he didn't want to stay over so went i tried to call that night but got no reply and knew he was with his ex the next day he confirmed that and i broke down she goes on to say he never got back with his girlfriend. They remained uh, an item on and off for another year. She was mainly trying to help him and sort his life out. He, he told him that he loved her. He was sorry, but it was a bit too late. At 23, she met a man who, she says, blew me away. He was funny and cocky and charming. A gifted musician in a band. I, feel for him I, I fell for him instantly. Our first night together, he practically pinned me to the bed and ripped my socks off. I fell in love. I think that's the way Mickey Boyd likes to make love. He takes no prisoners. Uh, We were both a bit effed up and bruised. We reveled in each other's darkness and had, had intense dark sex. We never had a first kiss, actually. That came after our first shag, which probably should have told me a lot about him. But I was smitten. I was so insecure, so the fact he was off on tour a lot didn't help. And the fact he lived in Leicester didn't help either. The spending a week together once, I got upset when he was going away. He smacked me in the head. I remember being really shocked, not sure of what had happened or if I had imagined it. This man loved me. Did that just happen? And that there was our relationship. It was equal parts wonderful and hellish. The first time he found out how many people i had slept with, he locked himself in my lounge for half an hour then called me in to inspect the damage. He had broken everything like a destructive dog. Yeah, I think all of us guys would struggle with that. I don't think any man is comfortable with his woman's uh... sexual history it's uh... not a good moment not a good moment you have that point you have that day where you uh... start telling each other how many partners you've had uh... women should be taught at schools to wh- however many partners they've had to just maybe halve them and you know maybe us guys should do the same uh, it's not a good moment for any any guy uh... Okay, he never hit me after that, she says. It would be more pushing me down or pinning me against the wall and always when I was upset. He couldn't handle me crying. I got out of hospital once. He couldn't deal with it. He threw a fresh out of the oven pizza at my head, causing me to lose my balance and burst my stitches. And that was another toe gone. It's, uh, how many toes is she down to now? Is it Six? I loved him though, everyone loved him. I believed he had issues. I could see his whole face change when he lost it and then he would come back and be so sorry and cry and I would forgive him. Uh, A year on, nothing had changed and I got pregnant. I'm very fertile, she says. I believed this would save us and we were happy when we found out but he could still get stressed and lose it. We had an almighty row when I was pregnant and I remember him pushing me to the floor and kicking me in the stomach. He saw doctors and counsellors got put on antidepressants for a while, which helped. I changed after I had a baby though. I had a reason to be better. I had something more worthwhile than me to protect. We stayed together for seven years all in all, were married for three, had another kid. I'm not sure why I ended it. Well, actually, I am. I began to like myself a lot and realised I deserved more and was so tired of being this good person to his bad, of always feeling like I was chirpy and problem-solving, only for him to shoot me down and drain the life out of me. I didn't want the children to witness any more than they already had. It was time to go before it was too late. Uh, Says she volunteered with kids at a domestic violence centre, something that she does now still. Uh, not because I in any way feel like I was a battered wife but just because it feels good to be doing and have a mild understanding of what's going on I can still be insecure I still generally tell a man I like about my feet and stuff straight away just to get it out there I hope she's not uh, maybe maybe dealing with that moment where she tells uh, men how many guys she slept with maybe maybe that needs to be tweaked slightly maybe she needs to look at that slightly uh, i'm also aware that i have a lot of positive points my face is brilliant as is my hair good hair is always important and the rest of my body's not bad either i wouldn't take any of it back that has happened even knowing now that i caused most of my problems myself by not resting i still wouldn't change it I like who I am now just about. I'm a good mum with brilliant friends and I'm happy I'm doing my bit for others and working towards supporting the kids all by myself. I'm moving forward all the time and achieving and that's really important to me. Uh, Apologies uh, Clem for the way I had to edit this. Um, I may have missed out some important stuff. You know, when I get emails from uh, women about relationships uh, telling me how things went wrong for them and, you know, laying into the guys and I'm not saying that's happened here but uh, it's an insight into how women think about us and you know for me perhaps time to reflect on maybe how ex'es came to make the decisions they made about me uh, I've, I've, I'm probably easier to get emails from from guys about relationships because as a guy you know you always root for the guy but uh, yeah uh, thank you thank you uh, for the uh, coming back emails please keep your Uh, stories coming in please try and limit them to 400 words as you saw there uh difficulty in editing them um the volunteering stuff there in that last email was interesting Uh, i had my induction this week at the hospital for my volunteer work uh a bit of a tete-a-tete with the uh induction leader on the smiling thing as she said a smile was important i picked up that i wasn't smiling I don't go with the smile thing. I told her this. I'm always suspicious of smiles. Uh, you know, yeah, I I too can be bowled over by a smile on occasion. But uh, I just don't like the way people make a judgment, uh, a judgment about you if you're not smiling. I think that's unfair. You know, people don't smile for a lot of reasons. If I have something to smile about, I'll smile. And even when I have something to smile about, I, I won't smile. It's just, you know, I have this default face. It's, uh, you know... It's a brooding face it's a face women find attractive. what can you do you know how how, how prized is a smile I'd like to smile a bit more but I also want to uh, I want to make sure that I uh, the, the smile is genuine and uh, I, I would suggest that uh, a significant number of smiles that you see from people aren't genuine you know if you don't know me why are you smiling at me you know I could be an absolute bastard you don't know enough about me to be smiling at me you know get to know me a bit then smile. Anyway, I'm now up for an interview uh, for the Cancer Ward. I, I didn't want to do, you know, I didn't want to volunteer for information points and so on. Um, you know, I want to, as I said before, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to do something that is going to have an impact on my life. I want to do something that I know is serious, that I know I have to give a hundred percent because it's not something that you can cut corners on. They were obviously concerned by the amount of bereavements in that. You know, year long period from 2008 to 2009, particularly, you know, my friends passing uh, through cancer. I think my uncle was through cancer as well. I knew where they were coming from, but I'm an intelligent guy. I made it clear that I wasn't trying to change anything. I felt a lot of peace uh, from that time. The, the, The way my friend passed away, the way my uncle passed away in hospital, I had enough time. To tell them how much i loved them both they were completely different experiences from my parents who'd gone suddenly you know and you were just left feeling bereft you know it was hard watching these people pass away in hospital but i was able to you know say what i needed to say and able to be there for them and uh nothing to beat myself up over and uh, i made that clear at my interview i'm not looking to relive anything or through some dying stranger i just you know i want to do something that means something to someone i want to do something that helps me make that final step away from this uh you know from this bubble you know writing every day the podcasts looking at you know what's happened the last year working on the book it's been uncomfortable at times the book particularly i I can't wait to finish it because i'm having to relive moments that have happened but are not necessarily uh do not necessarily reflect the person that i believe i am now so it'd be good to step out of that bubble you know to get some perspective on things to, to to be able to prize my health to be able to be there for people who may not have anyone um, I, I I like to think i 'm not doing it so I feel better about myself i i don 't think it 's about that I know that whatever I see you know and if the, if this interview falls through if i don 't get this job on the ward on the cancer ward then i 'm going for the hospice which are you know i've been given an application for that i 'm determined to do this i i know it'll be hard but I know that i 'm hard enough to handle it i I saw enough in the year my friend was ill I saw enough in the weeks that my uncle was ill to know the kind of sites that I would be seeing. Um, I don't want to be stuck at some information point. Uh, by choosing this route, it means not working in the hospital I wanted to be based at. But, you know, I just want to do this. Now it's time. Uh, no segue here. No segue. Can't find a segue. Uh, hairstyles uh, that you uh, loathed on Partners, Current or ex uh that you know hairstyles that you struggle with but perhaps you you weren't able to say at the time that you didn't like those hairstyles but on on reflection you weren't pleased with them uh a couple uh this week uh filth d uh i'm a i have a deep-seated aversion to any fringe that doesn't cover the eyes in any of its nefarious forms especially short and blunt victoria sponge seven uh emailed in she chose to open with uh her dislike of uh, women's hairstyles uh uh hairstyles i dislike on ladies uh the 1980s curly or permed hair with lots of product in it and a very high fringe 80s hair was big as well wasn't it um i used to have this style at school my then boyfriend used to measure my fringe uh so okay so she's it in the 80s as well that's that's 20 years ago that's uh, dating young dating young um I used to have this style at school. My then boyfriend used to measure my fringe and my friend's fringes to see who had the highest. Overall, I came in second with an average of about 7 centimeters. The trick is the trick to keeping a fringe like that is gel, spray, and a very powerful hairdryer. It lasted for days. I also dislike the skunk look uh, thing, it looks awful and usually belongs to someone working in a hair salon. Uh, these people intimidate me with their multicolored hair. Men's hairstyles I dislike range from the mullet. I've got quirky taste, but never been attracted to the mullet. There's something about the long, unkempt hair at the back that makes my skin crawl, which is intriguing because if she was dating in the 80s, uh, a lot of the men available in the 80s would have had mullets. Men of all ages. I mean, every man would have had a mullet at some point in the uh, mid to late 80s um the rat's tail hairstyle is another strange phenomenon that i find particularly unattractive is there any reason for the extra long piece of hair it, i also dislike the use of hair accessories on men there's absolutely no need for bands uh around the rat's tail or alice bands which are absolutely uh, absolutely abhorrent i think that's a dig there um alice bands are fine alice bands are fine Ex- Except uh, when doing sports, I think that that 's old hat now. Uh, I had a rat 's tail in eighty nine uh, my my Kurt Smith tribute. It was late by about five years. the whole rat 's tail thing I think was done and dusted by about eighty four uh, victoria sponge seven uh finishes off her email uh one of my exes a very attractive guy from new zealand had the whole surfer thing happening including his hair it was a long curly it was long curly dark hair that required a certain amount of maintenance which he didn't always undertake as i ran my fingers through his mane my hand would get caught in the dreadlocks forming in the back of his hair i found this a little off-putting i made the mistake of suggesting that he could try getting it cut a little shorter as it would complement his features. Not that it was starting to form dreadlocks through lack of brushing, Uh, never thinking that he would actually do it. To my horror, he got one of his mates to cut it, and it looked awful and made him look about ten years younger. I don't think I hid the horror on my face particularly well, and he looked very disappointed. Uh, I feigned my delight whilst trying to conceal my guilt for suggesting it and hoped that it would grow back. There you go. Keep your hairstyles coming in. Hashtag hairstyles. Uh, tweet them at 1607 West Egg or email them in drt at co 1607couk uk. They're not just for women, you know. You're listening to the Daniel Ruiz Tyson podcast. I ate a, a croissant like a burger today. I don't know why that happened. Some days I'm too lazy. Sometimes I'll just pick a croissant up and start eating it like that it's not a it's not a good look it's not a not a good look i was uh, disappointed with myself today been sleeping bad that's not changing uh mickey boyd told me uh, a while back i need to get a weapon in uh you know live on my own need to get a weapon in in case there's an intruder i used to have a rolling pin a few years ago under the bed it was a big rolling pin it would have hurt didn't make the girl i was with at the time feel safe obviously you know man defending her with a rolling pin that's not going to fill her with confidence but it is more than i have now and uh, you know i'm so concerned by this as well that i've had to change the way i sleep i the only way i can get to sleep usually is uh, with a radio or a podcast on usually on my front both arms under the pillow um this is a result of years ago working in a radio studio i think i might have told this story before and uh i had headphones on someone uh didn't tell me that you know the producer didn't tell me they were bringing in an advert absolutely blew my ears to pieces i started having blackouts which uh would happen when i was sleeping on my back so around the age of 23 24 i had to change the way i slept and i found that a way to not feel that Uh, balance problem you know when I slept on my back I'd feel you know I could feel like it felt like things were moving you know the room would be spinning and uh, I couldn't handle the nausea so I started sleeping on my front both arms under the pillow both arms inevitably dead by the time I woke up in the morning I would not be able to get up I could not lift my hands my arms from under the pillows so uh, you know any girlfriends would have to get me out of bed Uh, this this start I remember about summer of 95 one morning my my mom and my sister had gone to spain i was alone for a couple of weeks and i heard a massive thump one morning and it was actually the sound of my dead arm hitting the wall and i thought wow that's weird picked up my arm it was flapping i couldn't feel anything um but i know i can't sleep like that now there, there are moments where i've woken up and i struggle to get up because of both arms have, have, have gone almost dead. And I realise I can't do that anymore. I'm on my own. Imagine if an intruder found me at that moment. I wouldn't be able to move. I'm exposed. I'm three tracksuit bottoms away from possibly being buggered if he so wishes. And, and this is an issue for me. Because uh, one of the uh, public sector roles I had. I can't say where. But uh, the department I was in... Um, would actually uh, play a part in uh investigate in, in criminal investigations and uh some of the uh cases we were dealing with at the time involved intruders and uh you know the stuff i read which was the reason i actually packed that job in it, it kind of stayed it, you know years on it stayed with me i don't want to be you know 70 years old you know being assaulted in front of my wife by some guy who's still 25 years away from being born—I—I I, I don't want that moment. Um, so I don't know. What do I do? Do I do what Mickey suggests? Do I get a—do I get a weapon in? There is absolutely nothing in the house beyond—well, uh, I'm not going to say beyond what. But uh, I don't know. It's got to be something big. It's got to be something you can strike someone with, obviously. Uh, it is a concern. It's a concern. I think it's uh, it's it's a concern that people uh, my age probably start to feel. It's not a concern when you're in your twenties. You know, you think your life is never going to end when you're in your twenties. When you get to your thirties, your forties, you know it's going to end. What you worry about is how it's going to end. I really need to find se- <laughs> some segues into the next. Uh, you know, into some of these next items. Ah. Uh, s- as uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the Keep Your Head Appeal. Uh, regular listeners will know what happened to me last year. If you're new to the show, Show 31, good place to start. You'll find much of the info on the fundraising page. Over £300, I think between 300 and £400, has been raised for the Adult Psychotherapy Fund at St Thomas's Hospital. Uh, genuinely humbled by large and small donations. Uh, the uh, page is uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Go on there, donate anything large or small or retweet any links be grateful uh, I'll be grateful for that uh, to those of you who've already donated uh, you know big thank you four more shows after this uh, the appeal ends on Christmas Eve uh, the uh, the link again uk.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash Daniel ruiz tyson now time for uh, a Nectar Points update uh, this week. Uh, opening balance today, 171. Uh, four points. And closing balance, uh, 175. Uh, basic printer paper. I bought £2.38. And uh, diet blue bolt, 47p. You know, I've had to start going to Asda to get the soup. The uh, basic uh, soup. Smart price soup. So that's going to be doing me on the Nectar Points front. I think Sainsbury's appears to have discontinued their basic range of uh, tomato soup that's it for this week actually that's it for this week uh get me on twitter at 1607 west egg email the show drt at west egg 1607.co.uk please rate and review the show on itunes thanks to those of you who have over the last couple of weeks uh grateful for that you can also listen on Jellycast, stitcher and Mixcloud. Uh, join the facebook group as well If you just ask to join, I'll accept your request and you'll be able to post comments on there. Or alternatively, stick to posting on the blog 1607westegg.wordpress.com Thanks to Neil uh, and Mickey for their stings this week. Uh, Thanks uh, to the listeners also for supporting the show. Uh, Before I go, happy birthday to the rabbit and my aunt. I don't know how old my aunt is now. I think that age has changed every year. It either goes forward or backwards. It's like... I'm going to have to edit that out. Uh, yeah, happy birthday to the rabbit. He turns 40. Uh, he turns 40. My oldest friend grew up with him. Uh, you know, like brothers, basically. Did all our schooling together. Uh, amazing. That's how old we're getting now. All right. Uh, until next week, I'm Daniel Ruiz Tyson. And I think you know, i will never going bald. Next week, people. Next week.